If you're new to Element, welcome. If you had the coffee in the back and it's bad, it's my fault. Because I made the coffee this morning. And I don't like coffee. It tastes terrible anyway. So if it's terrible, then it tastes like it's supposed to. So it's all good. You're welcome. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app called Uversion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by your little GPS in there. And then you get all the sermon notes and the verses as we go through this. Yay! Okay, whatever. Uh, on the 25th of this month, we are having a newcomer party. If you are new or newer to Element, felt like you haven't connected that well yet and you want to connect with some people, come to the newcomer party. We'll feed you a whole lot of sugar, get you all hopped up, introduce you to people, then you'll go home and you'll hit that sugar crash and you'll sleep all night long. But that was the best party I've ever been to in my life. Of course, because we threw it for you, and it's just amazing. So sign up and come. It's a lot of fun. There's not a lot of pressure. You can ask any questions you want or none at all. Then just hang out and eat all the food we give you. So there you go. It's, it's a great party. You should, anybody been to the newcomer party, past one at some point? They're cool, right? Yeah? All right. Say yes. Okay, good. All right. If you are playing softball this season, uh, we're doing a batting practice today at 2 p.m., at Rodenberger Park, it's across the street from Kmart. So show up with just a smile on your face and get ready to hit some balls. I'm not going to be there, and but I promised Britt I would go to the batting cages this week just so I can hit as terrible as always. Uh, we are also redoing our meals kind of ministry uh, where it's changing from one person to another. And so if you signed up before to make meals for people when they're in the hospital or if they've just had children and, you know, had babies and stuff like that, we try to make sure these families actually get meals for a couple weeks so there's not a whole lot of stress there and how am I going to feed everybody. And if you want to be part of that uh, and, or have been before, on the general volunteer list in the back, just sign your name on that and write food next to it because we're trying to update our list to make sure everybody's still there so the same three people aren't making meals three nights a week for everybody and just kind of crazy. But if you'd like to do that, make meals sign up. And then uh, my last thing, I know i got a few things. This is my last one. Uh, I just found out about this this morning. Uh, one of the ladies in our church is friends with the family whose little girl has cancer. And so what we're doing is they, they're doing a barbecue in a couple weeks. It's Carol. Everybody say to Carol. And if you guys go out to eat, you know, after, like it's on Saturday, right? Yeah. On, on Saturdays, you ever go out to eat, buy a barbecue ticket from her that all of her seeds go to this little girl and her family to help with that and just go and have lunch there. It'd be great. I think it's in two weeks, right? Actually, it's next Saturday. It's next Saturday. So if you're going to eat next Saturday, (laughs) may as well get a barbecue ticket, help out a little girl in the process. We're good to go. Why don't you guys stand me reading God's Word on that happy note. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 8. And it says, Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people ask that we would understand how to worship you and how to serve you only and understand all the things that you have done throughout eternity to rescue and save your people. And we ask that how we in turn love you back brings you great glory and great honor. Amen. Have a seat. So if you didn't grab a Bible, you probably should have because we're going to be flipping through a lot of verses today. We're in a series called The Missing Words. The Missing Words are words that Jesus intentionally left unsaid to convey a deeper meaning. Now, I could say certain things to you like slogans, and and you could finish them, or tell me where they're from. Like if I said, just do it. Nike, Nike. yeah, this side of the room's on top of it. Zoom, zoom, zoom. See, and I got a song every week, right? Zoom, zoom, zoom. No, okay, whatever. Uh, You can uh, pop, pop, fizz, fizz. 
Oh, see, you guys must need that or something. Because this side, they're totally answering that one. That's, that's amazing. They're magically delicious. That's because they are magically delicious with the marshmallows and everything. Uh, this one's for my wife. Snap into a... Slim Jim. Like the three of you. It's like, yeah. Okay. Good. My baloney has a first name. It's... Wow. So you instinctively know these things. You're part of the culture. You can put these things together so you, so you understand my missing words. Now, Jesus did this. Now, it wasn't as mundane or stupid as your baloney being named Oscar or something like that. But there are certain things, if you grew up in that culture, in that, in that first century time, that Jesus would actually teach some things and you would instinctively know everything that he was and wasn't saying. We are 2,000 years removed from a lot of the historical things of Scripture, so it's a good idea to understand what's going on. Part of my job is to help you to know that. So today, in the missing words, we're going to look at a lot of things that are like the missing verses as well. Where does stuff comes from? We're actually going to look at God do something called stringing pearls, which is pretty cool. Now, have you ever thought, what kind of Bible did Jesus read from growing up? What, what did he look at? What, what, what did he know? Well, actually, the answer to that is the Jews read the same Bible, the Old Testament, in Jesus' day and our day today, they read the standard Old Testament. They just break up the books a little bit differently. They, they call this the Tanakh, and this is how they break up their books differently. It's, it's an acronym. The first thing they do is then the Tanakh is the T. This means Torah. We actually talked about this last week. Jewish people believe that at a specific moment in human history, God had spoken directly to their ancestors. This happens after they get out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness of Sinai, and God comes and speaks to Moses as he goes up on a mountain. Now, God speaks, and the copy of this becomes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. These are a copy of that. Now, Torah, I told you, can mean teachings, instructions, or simply the way. When Christianity first came about in the book of Acts, it was actually called the way, which is quite cool. Uh, they believe the Torah was also the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Jesus, when he comes, he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. In John 1, you realize that Jesus was, was actually called the word before we knew him as Jesus, it's kind of cool how it all goes together. Now, a question for rabbis that they would get was, how young do you train kids? How, how young do you teach them those scriptures? And so in Baba Batra, which is in the Talmud, the Talmud is a collection of two works. It's, it's Jewish commentary on the Old Testament called the Mishnah, and it's also oral law. And in Baba Batra, it says, Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil from six upwards, accept him and stuff him like an ox. There you go. Education for the Jews was key to survival. The Torah was so central, if you lost it, you would lose everything. So at age six, a kid would go to school for the first time, usually learning from his local rabbi. And what would he learn? He would learn Torah. Ages six to ten years old. That's all he would learn. Usually by ten, they would have the Torah memorized. I can't even memorize what channel my favorite TV show comes on, but they had almost the whole thing memorized. Torah. The second part of the Tanakh is the end. This is Nevi'im. Nevi'im translates as the prophets. These are the historical prophetical books. Joshua, Judges, Isaiah, things like that. These are divided into the former prophets, which is Joshua through Kings, and then the later prophets, which is everything else. In Jewish liturgy, sections of the Nebuchadnezzar are actually read every single uh, Saturday on Sabbath. They call this out, portions out of the Haftarah. And then the last one, the K, is the Ketuvim. And Ketuvim literally translates as writings. This is Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, which we're going to get to in just a few months, which is going to by the way, and these are what's called the wisdom literature, the wisdom literature. Knowledge is learning of facts and principles about reality and life. We are supposed to be people who are known by knowledge. We should have knowledge. 
Knowledge is listening and learning, but wisdom is actually doing what you know to be true. Knowledge comes fast, wisdom comes slow. Wisdom is birthed through life experiences. And the whole point of the scriptures is to take you from knowledge into wisdom. Have you seen The Matrix? They do this thing where there's a helicopter on the roof. They have to learn how to fly this helicopter. It says, download it into my brain. It's a blah, 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 blah helicopter. So they, they get all the information downloaded into their brain. But you know what? They wouldn't be able to fly the helicopter. Having all the knowledge of how to fly a helicopter doesn't enable you to fly a helicopter. It's like playing a guitar. You could learn all the chords, all the theory, all the structure, put a guitar in somebody's hands, and they can't make chords because their hands don't have the dexterity to do it. So dexterity is like wisdom. Knowledge is all the facts about it. But dexterity is the wisdom to actually do it. And this is the point of rabbis teaching the scripture. So that we had wisdom to live out the things that God had said. And the first thing you realize when people have wisdom, the very first thing they become is humble. An arrogant person is not wise. If you think you're, you're very wise and you're arrogant, you're not wise. Usually humble people are wise because they have gone through a lot of life experiences, made a whole bunch of mistakes, and this tends to make them wise on the other side. Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, uh, Ketuvim, these are what the Jews would uh, study. Now, when Jesus uh, comes and teaches, he actually makes allusions to all three of these, linking them all together. He quotes the most from Deuteronomy and the Torah, Isaiah and the prophets and Psalms and the wisdom writings. And Jesus favors a lot of the same texts a lot of rabbis in his day does. And every time Jesus would quote from these books, a first century audience would put the, all the things together and go, oh, I see how these connect. These are from our scriptures. They make sense so that they could then live them out in wisdom. It is difficult to overestimate the love that rabbis had for the scriptures. Everything they did was saturated in learning to live out the scriptures. They understood instinctively that the Bible did not drop out of the sky packed in a diaper by a stork. It was written by people interacting with God's spirit, people who told stories and passed on oral traditions. And then they'd sit down and put them in stone or animal skins or pen and paper all under the guidance of God. The Bible originated from real people in real places in real times in relationship with a real God. It is poems and stories and letters and accounts of people interacting with each other in actual space and time and God interacting with people in actual space and time. The Bible is not just simply information about God and Jesus and then you take little sections out and apply it as you would a cookbook or an instruction manual. You ever heard people say that, oh, the Bible's like an owner's manual for your life. That's a terrible metaphor. Jews would never use that metaphor. You ever heard people say, oh, the Bible, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. You heard that? That's stupid. It's terrible. As if our entire purpose that God put us on the earth was to leave it. Why even put us here in the first place? I mean, so when was the last time you read the owner's manual for your toaster or your microwave or you, you bought a new TV? When Did you read it? You, know, you plug it in, you plug everything and go, why doesn't it work? I don't know. I'm going to call the customer service number. That's what we do. And if you did actually read it, were you inspired by it? Did you call up your friends on the phone or you're like, oh, I just read the best book. It's so changed my life. Oh, what is it? Oh, it's the instruction manual for my microwave. Really? Yeah, it only costs like 150 bucks. Why don't you go get one too? I mean, it's, we, we don't do that. We don't do that because what we do, when you only read your instruction manual when it breaks. And you get your instruction manual out, you read it, and you go, okay, this is how you fix it. And then you, put, you use it to fix a problem, and then you put it away. We are people who must embrace the scriptures as the wild, uncensored, passionate account of people experiencing the living God. 
Sometimes they doubt the one true God. Sometimes they wrestle with the one true God. Sometimes they get beat up by the one true God. You know, so, sometimes they argue with the one true God. Sometimes they get angry with the one true God. Sometimes the one true God gets angry with them and then beats them up. Sometimes they reconcile with the one true God. Sometimes they love or they worship or they think. And it's all about following the one who gives us everything. Scripture is not something we tame. You cannot tone it down. And so a rabbi, they saw their job as taking the Scriptures and putting it in a way that people could live them out in wisdom. They understood the Bible has to be interpreted. They understood the role in community was to study and meditate and discuss and pray and make decisions about how to apply these Scriptures, God's living Word. So rabbis were interpreters helping people understand what it means to live the text. Then they would teach these texts. When Jesus comes, what you see he says over and over and over is, I have come to preach the good news. I have come to preach the good news. Why are you here? I have come to preach the good news. I have come to show you how to live out these texts. So on a good day, rabbis would link text after text after text together from these from the Tanakh, putting them all together. Now, early in the second century, there's a rabbi. His name was Ben-Azai. Now, one day, Ben-Azai, he's, he's teaching. There's a story that talks about that fire starts splashing around him as he's teaching because he's setting the audience ablaze with his teaching. Now, a, a lot of preachers want to know how to do this, not set you on fire, but learn how to teach better so that everything kind of connects naturally and you walk out just wanting to put the scriptures to use in your life and live what they actually say. So they asked him, you know, what, what are you doing? How, how does the, what's your secret? How this works? And he says this, I was linking up the words of the Torah with one another and then the Torah with the words of the prophets and the prophets with the writings and the words rejoiced as in the day they were delivered from Sinai and were they not originally delivered from Sinai in fire? Now, what you're probably thinking is, what does that mean? What he says is that he's using a standard teaching technique that Jews and rabbis use called stringing pearls. They take these three sections of the Tanakh and put them together, bringing passages together from different places to explore great and deep truths. And he says when he does it, it's as if the words themselves exploded off the page and they burst into flames. What's the original intent? How does it mean for you and I to actually live these things out in wisdom? So open to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. First book, New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus does the same thing. Matthew chapter 5 is a section in Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest portion of straight teaching by Jesus ever recorded. We may even look at this more closely in a year and a half or so. Uh, a section of this is called the Beatitudes. And these passages are thick with references to all three of these books. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 3. Starting in verse 3, so it goes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, some people read this and they think, oh yeah, Jesus is like Confucius. He's just kind of selling little things. Oh, I can put that on a fortune cookie and open it up and eat it. It will be so wonderful. But that's not what he's doing. He's actually stringing pearls. Watch this. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Psalm 40, Psalm 69, Isaiah 61. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is Ezra 10, Psalm 51, Daniel 9, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 61. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 16, Psalm 37, Isaiah 66. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Psalm 42, Psalm 63. Jesus is pulling these things together. Keep going. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is Psalm 18. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Deuteronomy 10, 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 24. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 9, Deuteronomy 14, Hosea 1. I mean, he's, he's not just throwing things out there. He's, he's putting these things together. 
Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Isaiah 51, Isaiah 66, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is Second Chronicles 24, Nehemiah 9, Jeremiah 20. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Jesus strings these words together to show that all Scripture is, is when living in wisdom can show mankind how they were originally intended to live. And every time Jesus does this, and he does it a lot, he'll remind the crowds of all the missing words, of all the missing passages in the Bible, which God had promised to rescue his faithful followers. Send a Messiah. Teach us how to live, read, and know the Scriptures. Jesus pulls all these very scriptures together to make one point, and that is that God is always faithful. Always. He cares for us. He blesses us when we seek Him, even when life is painful. But the problem is when life gets painful is when we kind of chuck Him and, and walk away. And Jesus says, you can't do that. God is faithful. He will see you through everything. So you follow Him so far? Yeah? Okay, good. Open to Mark chapter 1. We're actually going to get to the message now. You're like, what? Yes. This will be fun. God the Father actually strings pearls in a verse. And I want to show you how this works. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have accounts of Jesus getting baptized by his crazy cousin John. John uh, ate bugs and wild honey. He had a camel hair toga with a big old belt. And people, you know, just like, like you know, Ted Nugent with sandals. That's what we call him. Anyway, so people would come up to him in the river, and John would preach repentance. He'd go like, what'd you do? And they'd be like, oh, I stole, and I did this. Yeah, what else? And then he'd dunk you. And he'd grab the next guy. What'd you do? I did this. And he'd, and he'd dunk you. And what'd you do? And he'd dunk you. And then Jesus shows up, and he's like, well, you didn't do anything. And he's like, I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus is like, no, no, you need to baptize me because I've got to show people how they're supposed to live. And so they end up, uh, John baptized Jesus, Jesus baptized John. In the scriptures, John's the only one that Jesus ever baptized. And so in Mark 1, what you do is you get a very short account of this because Mark is like boom, 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 action, action, action. But in Mark 1, starting in verse 9, says this, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, at face value, this seems very simple, like a thoughtful, wonderful affirmation of who Jesus is. And, and it is that. But other people who were there at the time growing up in this culture would have actually heard something a little bit more and a little bit different of the things that God is actually saying to Jesus at his baptism. So I want to show you the missing words of what's taking place. Open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. There's a lot going on here. Now, Psalm 2 is understood by rabbis, and they taught it at this time as being a powerful messianic prophecy. The Messiah, the Redeemer, is going to come and save God's people. They are under the heel of Rome at this point, so they're looking for a Messiah. So all of these verses that refer to the Messiah, the Redeemer, coming is foremost in the front of their minds. In Psalm 2, God is making a royal proclamation about His Son, the King of Kings, who's going to rule over the entire earth. Now, the subject here, it concerns the anointing and the coronation of a king. The psalm, Psalm 2, is one of the, mo of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. It's favored by the apostles as scriptural confirmation of Jesus' title as Messiah and Christ and is expected to return with power and authority. The first century church even applies this psalm as an explanation for the crucifixion of Christ by the rulers, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the nations, and Israel. 
you know, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, all who conspired against the Messiah of God in Acts 4, 25 to 28. Paul, the apostle, applies it to Jesus' ministry, his sonship, his resurrection, his ascension and glory, all confirming the promises that God makes that the Redeemer will come, and this is Jesus the Messiah. In Acts 13, Hebrews 1, Revelation 12, Revelation 19. So the king in Psalm 2 speaks about God's promise, publicly proclaiming his own relationship with God, the great king. And this decree determines his relationship to the king and to the nations. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And when God says, you are my son, this is what they would have thought of instantly in their minds. They would have heard this. Open to Genesis chapter 22. Whom I love. Genesis 22, that's where this is from. Now, I told you a story of Abraham a couple weeks ago. I'll just give you the little rounded out version. Abraham, he's like 65 years old. He's got his three camel garage. Everything's set up. He's, he's good to go in life. And God shows up and says, leave everything you know and follow me. And Abraham says, okay. And he does. Packs up everything, follows where God tells him to go. And in the process of this, God says, now, I know you're 65. I know your wife is barren, but you will have a son. And this son will lead to a son, to a son, to a son that eventually leads to my son, Jesus, who will save all of mankind. Now, there's 25 years goes by. Abraham still doesn't have his son. You know, he's, he's probably thinking, I don't know what's going on with this. I don't want to have a kid at this point because I'll change his diapers and mine. I'm not buying green bananas at this point. I don't know if they'll yellow up by the time I'm done with them. You know, it's, it's a little worried. And then God actually does give him his promised son after 25 years of waiting. And he loves this boy. He names him Isaac. He loves Isaac with a passion. And in Genesis 22, 2, this is what you read. God shows up again and says, Now take your son, your only son, which is also very important because God has an only son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now we know the backside of the story. We know that God didn't have Abraham sacrifice his son. We, we, we know all that. But Abraham doesn't know the end of the story. But Abraham trusts God. He goes to comply. He, they get to the mountain, and Isaac carries his own wood for his own sacrifice up this hill. Abraham binds his son. The Jews called this the Akita, the binding. He binds his son, and, and, and Isaac doesn't cry out. Then Abraham lays him down, and he raises the knife, and God stops him and provides a sacrifice in the place of Abraham's son. And Isaac passes from death to life through faith in God's goodness. Now, the words... When God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. The word love there, this is the first time the word love is used in the scriptures. And it is used here in reference to Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. The word for love here actually becomes the Greek word agape, which is God's word that he uses for love of people. It is the word that God uses when Jesus comes out of the water and says, this is my son whom I love. It is that word. And the Jews would automatically think back to that when they heard that. This is my son, my son, whom I love, your only son, whom you love. And they would put this together. Now, open to Isaiah chapter 42. You're like, oh, the first two easy were easy to find. Isaiah 42, what? To the right of the Psalms. You'll get it. I trust you. Isaiah 42. This is with you I am well pleased. Again, this is another messianic prophecy that the, that the Jews and the rabbis would have taught during the time when Jesus was around because they're looking for the Messiah to come. Isaiah chapter 42 Verse 1, I know all of you with smartphones are like, ha ha, zip, bing, and you're like, there. <laughs> Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. And this can be actually translated as, With you I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. 
Again, this is another prophecy, but it's also a prophecy that the Messiah is going to be a servant. If you take Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, it's like a paradox. He's a king, and yet he's a servant. How does that work? And on the backside, we realize it points to Jesus. The passage from Isaiah also says that God's Spirit is upon His servant. I think it's amazing at the baptism that God's Spirit descends on Christ and Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, not to belabor the point, but follow me logically here. Psalm 2, He is a king. Genesis 22, this is a son, and it ends up being God's son, emphasizing how precious Isaac is to Abraham and how precious Jesus is to God the Father, and that he is going to become a sacrifice, foreshadowing the father's feelings for his son. Isaiah 42, he is a servant Messiah. In three brief quotes from the scriptures, God the Father speaks of Jesus' king, servant, and his son, who's going to become a sacrifice. Now, when God speaks, he pecks a lot into words. And what you notice is that the three passages come from the Torah, Genesis 22, the prophets, Isaiah 42, and the Psalms or wisdom literature in Psalm 2. God links all these together from three parts of Scripture. Quoting all three, he's proclaiming that the entire Scriptures point to Jesus as their fulfillment. The missing words all point to Christ. God the Father is just brilliant. Now, I know you're probably wondering, why do I even share this with you this morning? Great, it's nice information, but, but what does it have to do with anything? Turn back to Genesis chapter 22, and I'll show you why. In the story of Abraham, where he is about to sacrifice Isaac, now I, I imagine that the pain that he is going through. I, I imagine he's, he's weeping. I imagine he's thinking about, what am I going to tell my wife when I, when I go home? And I think he raises the knife. I think he locks his arm because he wants it done in one blow because he doesn't want to have to stab his son again and again and again. And he raises the knife. And in verse 11 of chapter 22, it says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. I think Abraham's like, Thank God. He says, Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, Do not do anything to him. And in an instant, Abraham has given back his laughter and his joy. He goes through all this suffering, and yet he perseveres through it on the other side. But suffering alone doesn't produce perseverance. It is suffering that is endured through faith that does. He says, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Again, very important. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This, again, foreshadows the coming of Christ. This right here is the beginnings of our understanding of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And Jesus speaks, or the Father speaks about it at Jesus' baptism. This is what this is. We all have sinned against an eternal God. That makes our sin eternal sins. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against each other. And we deserve death for our sin. And yet Jesus comes and dies for our sin. A transaction occurs where I get Jesus' righteousness before God and He gets my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We have to understand this because the message of God in Jesus getting baptized, the message of God back in Abraham sacrificing his son, the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection, is either you pay for your sin for eternity because it's an eternal type of sin or Jesus pays for it for you. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And if we do not understand this, we will not understand sin, salvation, or hope. In verse 14 of chapter 22, it says, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. This is Jehovah Jireh. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain, the Lord will be provided. Why is Genesis 22 important, especially at the baptism of Jesus? 
because God will provide. And Abraham recognizes this. This is the spot where one day Solomon will build, his, will build God's temple and sacrifices will occur, all foreshadowing Christ. God makes a promise to Abraham that says, through your offspring, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, And to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, who comes and the Father says, This is who he is. And he will die as a substitute for sinners. And he will fulfill God's promises. And he will be king and son and servant, just as God said in Mark chapter 1. It is amazing. One of the great messages of the cross is that God chooses not to stand apart from suffering. He experiences it himself. He is not unmoved by the pain of his people. And he uses everything that we go through, connects it with his words and scriptures, so we become a people who can live in wisdom. Jesus walks to the place of his sacrifice, carrying his own wood on his back, just like Isaac did. When he is bound, he does not cry out, just like Isaac didn't cry out. And yet when the nails pierced his flesh or the spear pierced his side, nobody held back that hand because there is no other sacrifice. And this time the son died and the father grieves. But the third day comes as it comes for us and Jesus raises from the dead. The father points to his son and he says, this is my son and he is a king. I love him and yet he will die for you. With him, I am well pleased because he is a servant Messiah, king, sacrifice, and servant. This is our God. Sometimes people ask us why every week we do communion. This is why, right here. Because this is God's son, who he loves. With him, he is well pleased. That is why. This is why when you break that cracker, it represents Christ's body that was broken for us. When you dip in the wine of the grape juice, it's Christ's blood that was shed for us because nobody held the hand back that killed him. This is salvation. And this is hope. And this is redemption. And this is what God calls his people to understand and live in wisdom. That we are a people who cannot be arrogant. We are a people who, when we live in wisdom, realize that we have sinned against God. And yet God has graciously come to redeem and save us. And then we are people who are to turn and live in this world offering hope and light because this is what God calls us to. When you, when you look at this, I mean, this is what God intended from the very beginning. All the way back in Genesis, all the way through Jesus coming, all the way through the end of the Scriptures. Our God coming to save us as His people. We will worship God this morning through communion. The band was going to come up. I'm going to do a couple songs, and as they do, these songs are also going to hopefully reflect us back to His great gift for us. Before you take communion, think about this. What God intended from the very beginning is that we should be a people who live in humility and wisdom, a people who understand what He was doing now from the very beginning because He's revealed it to us. When Jesus comes out of the water, He says, This is my Son, and I love Him. With Him I am well pleased. You know, the scriptures say that those, those who follow Christ, you know, we're going to stand before God one day and, and we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want. We want God to say, yes, way to go, buddy. And we're going to say, it's not me, it's you. It's your strength and your hope and your life in and through me. Uh, we're going to worship God uh, through 
uh, prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you've never been introduced to Christ and you want to know more about who He is and this whole idea of substitutionary atonement, because I'll tell you, uh, the answer is not more self-esteem. The answer is Jesus. Okay? Talk to them. They would love to talk to you about who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us, His Son. And so giving is part of our worship, so we give you that opportunity every week. And then there's also some food in the back and some very bad coffee. And you're all welcome to have some of that and get to know some other people and encourage each other in this, that our God has died and risen for us as a people to bring us home because He is so good. You should live like He is so good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as a people ask that we would begin to live and walk in that wisdom so that we wouldn't be all about ourselves, but we would be all about you and what you have done. God, we quite freely confess that we spend much of our lives thinking about ourselves and what we want and where we want to go and what we want to do and and don't spend a whole lot thinking about how to actually truly live in wisdom. But this morning, I ask that you begin the process in all of us where we stop focusing on ourselves so much and all of our problems and all of our issues, but we would begin to focus upon you and what you call us to and what you called your people to from the very beginning. Hope and trust and life and faith fully honoring you as our God. Father, we thank you for sending your son who you love. Have us live in faith in him and what he has done and what he continues to do through the lives of your people. Thank you for being our God and revealing yourself to us. Amen.